Hello, my name is Matthew, and welcome to Listening to Nature. Today I will be talking about mountaintop removal, a look at the history of Appalachian coal mining from first discovery of coal all the way to mountaintop removal, a look at what coal wants to be and what coal never will be. Now imagine you're in a forest on top of a mountain, the wind swaying the trees and the sound of a river in the distance. Trees there for thousands of years, the swamps slowly turning into valleys, rock formations rising and falling to eventually create an endless horizon of mountains, one after another. Blue skies, birds flying overhead, pristine wilderness. Now imagine all that, with dump trucks that tower over school buses, excavators that are taller than five-story buildings, and daily explosions. All of that is the new reality of much of the Appalachian wilderness today. Mountaintops being removed, plucked off, one by one. Plucked, just like flowers from the ground, 500 feet of trees, rocks, dirt, and most importantly coal, removed from its summit. The coal trucked off to be burnt, and the rust dumped into the valley. The coal processed using arsenic, mercury, lead, and chromium that runs off into the river below. These chemicals contaminate the river and affect the surrounding ecosystem. Ingested by fish, it causes mutations that affect the jaw size, seen in fish generations after the mining has left. This process has damaged thousands of miles of ancient river creeks, severely damaging a culturally important and beautiful feature of the Appalachian landscape. However, even more insidiously, the chemicals in the water eventually would make their way into groundwater reservoirs. As a result, much of these toxins end up in drinking water. The region has such poor infrastructure from systemic poverty that many townships have trouble filtering out the toxins. The human consumption of these chemicals can cause cancer as well as stunted child development, posing a serious health risk. The explosions also release chemicals into the air that have been trapped inside the rock formations for centuries carried by the wind far beyond the original site of the explosion. This is an operation that moves in and out in a matter of 30 months, moving on to the next mountain right after that, leaving behind a piece of land that would never be the same. During the 1800s, Appalachia was a region of largely uninhabited forests. The only inhabitants were early Scottish-Irish settlers from the original British colonists, and poor Union soldiers given tracts of land as a reward for bravery during battle following the Civil War. This was a culture of highly isolated clan rule, of Hatfields and McCoys, of close-knit families entirely cut off from mainstream America. They ran small subsistence farms and operated family coal mines. It was in this context that industrial coal mining first took root. Wealthy barons realized the need for American coal during railroad construction, began buying these small mines, then connecting and expanding them. Over time, this led to large seams of industrial mining we see in Appalachia today. Coal mining reached its peak in Appalachia in the mid-1900s. In West Virginia alone, there were over 150,000 employed in the mines. This can compare to about 20,000 people employed in West Virginia mines today. But the mines in the 1900s were a different type of mine. Underground mines required more people to operate, but also produced a different result in the surrounding community. The mining companies would come in and create a town for the people who worked in the mines, building sidewalks and roads, and naming the towns after their own image, like the town of Mine 53 in Pennsylvania. When there was a coal bust in the 1990s, the industry transitioned into a new way of mining called mountaintop removal. This new method allowed the miners to get small veins of coal more profitable than in traditional underground mining. You may be thinking to yourself now, how are these companies just allowed to come in and take the land of someone and mine it? Well, this all has to do with mineral rights. In the 1900s, when mining companies were expanding, they went around to landowners and bought their mineral rights. Many landowners at the time had no idea what exactly this entailed. 
What mineral rights meant was that these companies could go in and by any means necessary extract the minerals out of the ground. Selling mineral rights is equivalent to selling the land, something very few sellers understood at the time. Those who were literate enough to read their contracts received bad legal advice about the nature of mineral rights from company lawyers. Those who continued to refuse to sell were taken to court by the coal company, where applicable judges were likely to declare eminent domain or demand back payment for obscure or antiquated tax laws. Today, mountaintop removal often provokes outrage when it's mentioned by name. There are very few people who are genuinely happy with the prospect of inverting the Appalachian Mountains. Numerous Appalachian poets, filmmakers, and songwriters have passionately and popularly protested against mountaintop removal. Over the years, however, coal companies have devised important euphemisms that allow them to have much more favorable media presence than one would expect. Coal removed from Appalachian mountaintops is the cleanest source of coal in the world. The seams are untainted by virtually any other mineral and burn at high rates while emitting significantly fewer toxins than more traditional excavation or strip mine counterparts. When pieces of media praise the virtues of clean coal, what they're actually talking about is this. The exploding of at least 500 feet of mountain summit. Still, only 3% of our national energy usage is derived from this clean mountaintop coal, despite media outlets implying a much higher percentage. But the myth of clean coal isn't the only thing that has been propagated recently. There's also a myth of a return to coal mining's heyday, a reversal to the 1930s Appalachia when anyone who showed up can make a day's pay. On the campaign trail and in recent speeches, Donald Trump has promised a new renaissance for American coal miners. He asked West Virginians if they're ready to work their asses off for a new, beautiful, clean coal future. This statement is profoundly ignorant of the changing face of coal mining. Gone are the days when it took a quarter million men to excavate Appalachia. Now each site needs about two dozen truck drivers, a couple in-house engineers, only a fraction who ever visit the site, and 30 months. No longer are the coal companies creating a town for the miners to live in. It is a quick in and out. While many in Appalachia are excited to see Trump's seeming commitment to the coal industry, people are deeply opposed to mountaintop removal. Almost every town that has a project initiated has fought the company. One former coal miner echoed sentiments of others in the community when he said, it all comes down to a mighty dollar because that's all the coal companies care about. Appalachians and affected communities harbor no delusions about the future of coal. So Trump's nostalgia is actually a particularly disturbing kind of predatory. While most media has focused on how it's rallied Appalachians, it has done much or even more to rally its base in mainline Philadelphia, Western Kentucky, and gated communities in Florida. All communities harbor a romanticized and idealized picture of Appalachia and its working class. So in an era of obfuscation, let's not forget clean coal isn't clean for everyone. It is disturbing that we as a country only measure the environmental impact of the burning of coal and never its production. The clean coal that so many see as the better of two evils has wreaked untold economic, physiological, and cultural damage to the Appalachian region. In order to truly stand in solidarity with a region that has always fought coal companies and always been a victim of extractive capitalism, we must first ask exactly who a clean environment is for. Is it for those who benefit the most from industrial development in cities and suburbs that could be damaged by smoggy air? Or is it for rural workers trying to develop a drinking water supply not damaged by mercury and arsenic? We must shift our environmental consciousness to account for all stages of the extraction process. Clean coal isn't clean for everyone. This is a look at what coal wants to be and what coal never will be. There is only dirty coal. Shady Groove by Shake That Little Foot is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share Alike License.
Construction Equipment is licensed under the Creative Commons Public Domain License, and Nature Sounds is licensed under the Creative Commons Public Domain License.